This evening's reading is taken from 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, to chapter 3, verse 18. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who will put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with the ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is God's word. Good evening, good to see you. My name's Matt. I'm one of the ministers uh, here. Uh, welcome again. Uh, if you're new, visiting, passing through town, it's good to have you here. And uh, you join us as we look at this book of 2 Corinthians. So we'll keep going again next week and then we'll take a bit of a, a pause. But we've been looking at this letter of Paul 
And uh, if you've been with us, you're probably getting the hang of it. Um, it's a letter that's written. Paul's writing to a church, and in effect, he's saying, I'm dying to give you life. Uh, I'm dying, but I long that you would have life. I love you. I'm writing to you because I love you. And then this ministry of dying to give life is underwritten by God. God sustains him as he gives himself to these uh, other people in this church. And you'll notice that the passages aren't getting any shorter as we look at them this evening. So let's pray as we as we come to this one tonight. Uh, Father, we've uh, sung and asked that you would speak to us. Thank you that you have uh, here in your word. And so we uh, we cry out again that you'd change us uh, by your powerful spirit, that if we're um, new to these things, that you'd help us to understand them. If we're very used to them, that you would lift our eyes to see something of your great glory at work in us. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, why are some uh, Christians so confident? Why are so, so, some Christians so confident? Do you ever uh, notice that? Um, you meet someone and they're, uh, they're stricken with disappointment, it seems, and yet uh, they're able to keep going. Or uh, they're involved in, frankly, a, a sort of a failing ministry, you'd have to say, humanly speaking, or a, a titchy little Bible study, and, and yet they... They just keep going, and they seem quite confident in doing that. I wonder if you've ever observed that. They seem to have some sort of amazing inner conviction that just keeps them going. Or maybe you come at it from a a different angle. Uh, You might be looking in, and and your question is, why are Christians confident at all? Uh, Why in uh, this world, in this city of so many religions, are, are Christians so confident uh, what do they think they have that other religions don't? What do they think that they have? I mean, it's okay, isn't it, to have God as as your private God? That's okay, that's fine. But um, why do Christians talk about him as if uh, everyone should come to know their God? Why do they Why do they do that? Seems uh, odd. I mean, it's okay to have a private, sort of hushed, secret religion, even something that people can pay for if they want to. But why all of this? Putting it out in the in the public square. Why do Christians want to do that? I don't know if you've ever thought uh, that way. I've been reading a, a book this week. It's called uh, God is Back. Uh, God is Back is the name of uh, the book. Quite a thick book. I haven't got all of the way uh, through it or the no, just past the introduction. Anyway, we've got uh, we've got going at least. But but here's the point that, that they make. Two two writers for the uh, Economist. And um, and what they do is they, they look back to 1966, which was the time when um, loads of people thought that this was the end of, of religion. Um, so Time magazine, it was that year Time magazine wrote, um, had the, the heading on the front, Is God Dead? That was the, the question then. Uh, they report 1967, there's this um, famous survey that's done. Uh, 67% of people said that they thought uh, religion would probably die out in the next few years. And then... What this book does is it traces that actually it hasn't, <laughs> hasn't died out at all. In fact, their point is, at the start of this century, book written a couple of years ago, at the start of this century, God is very much back. Uh, and Christians are very much at the forefront, uh, putting the Christian faith, wanting to put the Christian faith right at the center uh, of public life. 
And one of the questions behind this, neither of them Christians as they, they write this book, is why, why are Christians so full of confidence? Uh, why do they do that? Now, I think if any of us had met the Apostle Paul, uh, we'd have thought the same thing. Why is Paul so, so confident, so bold as he writes? Uh, if you know anything of, uh, of Paul in, in these letters, then Paul is a man who looks particularly weak particularly unimpressive. His preaching is just below average by his own admission. Uh, he seems to just get things wrong. He just seems to write letters and they're just received in the wrong way. He just looks fantastically weak, you think. And, and yet, and yet as you look in on this letter, he seems so confident. And in effect, the, the message of this evening is that he's confident because he knows that God is at work. That's why Christians can be confident, because they know that God is at work. And we'll see three uh, things in these verses together, three bits of evidence that Paul gives to show that he knows that God is very much at work, even though he looks weak. For a start, uh, verse 12, he says that God leads us. So do, um, do turn to that if you've lost your place, page 1159, chapter 2, verse 12. Let's, uh, let's read. Paul says God leads us now. When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So he says, I, I was in Troas, I was on a, I was on a preaching tour, I was going around the churches preaching, and, and there was a, there was a wide open door for me to start teaching people about Jesus, to start planting churches. Wide, wide open, but I was anxious. I was anxious about you as a church. I was in agony for you. And I really hoped that Titus would arrive and just give me some news that would keep me going, but no sign of Titus at all. So, at verse 13, I said goodbye. And I went, uh, I went west a bit, towards Macedonia, towards where you guys are in Corinth, just hoping that I might inter- intercept Titus on the way, and I'll get some news. So there is Paul, and, and there's a, a guilt-edged opportunity, it seems, and yet he moves on from that. But that's not where it finishes. You might think it's a bit of an own goal at that point, but not the case. Verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Now the image, uh, the image here is of a, a victorious uh, general, uh, fresh back from uh, battle, and he comes back into his home city. Uh, he comes in, in in triumph. And all of the, the troops who he's led back in, all of the, the captives as well, are led into the city, and the, the horses and the pomp and the circumstance, uh, circumstance, circumstance, not even pomp and circumstance, is that a phrase? Yeah, nods all around, good for you, thank you. So back into the city, back into the city. And he's the general leading. It's a triumphal procession. And at the back there are uh, people sort of swinging uh, incense, uh, music playing. It's a carnival. It's a carnival coming back into the city uh, as this general wins uh, the battle. And Paul says... Uh, thanks be to God, he's leading us in triumphal procession. Now, it's a slightly odd thing for him to say, because it looks like he's just walked away from a fantastic opportunity. But here's what Paul is saying. I'm absolutely confident 
in whatever circumstance that God is leading us. I'm absolutely confident, uh, walking away from this open door even, that God is leading us, not in a funeral dirge, not sort of, well, I wonder if God's in charge here. Paul says, look, I, I looked at my circumstances and it looked pretty bleak, frankly. I was in agony for you. Uh, I walked away from this opportunity because of that, but I'm absolutely confident that God is leading us. And through us, verse 14, he's spreading everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Spread everywhere to them. And, and his point in the next few verses is that the smell of that, this fragrance being wafted around, uh, really has a, a different effect on different sorts of people depending on where they are in the picture in the victory parade. So think uh, for a second, of course, victory uh, victory parades divide uh, people. Uh, I remember going to uh, Heathrow back in, in this 2003 when England won the rugby uh, World Cup, got up very, very early and, and set off uh, there to see the, the Webb Ellis Trophy be brought into uh, Heathrow Airport. You, if you're not from England, you'll notice we have to go back a little way to pick up on our, our victories in this country. But 2003, we're still holding on to uh, to that one and the ashes, of, of course, things like that. But but I remember on that day, as as I was standing there, there were there were lots of people who were thoroughly engaged uh, in that uh, victory procession as they brought the trophy in. And as you looked around, they were all sort of wearing England shirts and England hats and England scarves. And then there were other people who were sort of totally disengaged from the whole process because it wasn't their country. They had no, no dealings. I mean, a couple of sort of Australians there as well, slightly uh, upset at that moment. Um, but um, if, if that's not your, your country, you're, you're not sort of engaged in it. It's a victory, but it, it divides. For some, it's, it's of no interest at all. But if you're on the victory side, if you're part of the parade, where you're captivated by it, you're caught up uh, in it. Or or think at at the moment, uh, more seriously, on the streets of Libya uh, at the moment. Uh, Think of what's going on there. For for those who want the old regime to last, uh, to survive, uh, all of the... If you like, all of the sights and smells of what's happening in, in this week, um, they, they don't like, they don't want that sort of thing. This is a, this is a period of, of the death of the old regime. But in years to come, uh, those who've longed for a new regime for a long time uh, will one day look back on all of the sights and the smells of what's happened this week and uh, look back on that as, as the time when when the start of something new happened, it was a period of life. And you see, that's, that's what Paul says in effect in verse 15. There's this smell that's been wafted out. It's the smell of a new regime. It's the smell of Jesus Christ's victory, fresh from the grave, risen as the Lord, marching into the city of the world uh, as the exalted king. But people are divided. So he says, verse 15, We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Uh, To the one, we're the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. So he says to to those who are perishing, who don't want Jesus Christ as their king, uh, in effect, we we put out the smell of, of death to them. It smells like that. It's the death to themselves, really. And they don't want it. 
They don't want to have to die to themselves. And so they hear of Jesus Christ and they go, it's disgusting smell. I don't want any of that to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, those trusting in Jesus' death, it's the most wonderful smell in the world. It's the fragrance of, of life. It's the start of a wonderful new regime that started uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus and will be consummated in the new creation that he's bringing in. And so this is the, the smell of what's to come. It's like that, that moment in the next few months that you get when you just smell that first little smell of summer. I don't know what it is for, for you. Uh, for me, it's, it's cut grass. Um, or I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the, just that first barbecue. You know, that first, the first T-bone. You know, just the smell just drifts off. And you think, wonderful. That is the smell of summer. It's the smell of things picking up again in the year. It won't be long before we're enjoying the summer and then a week later it'll be over and, you know, all, all of that sort of thing. But you, you hang on for that. It's the smell of life. And Jesus Christ, to those who are being saved, it's the smell of life. It's the start of a wonderful new regime. And Paul says, do you see, do you see that's what we do. We, we divide people in two as we walk around as part of this victory parade. And so he says, verse 16, who is equal to such a task? That's what we do. We, we divide people into two. As we walk around this city, as we walk around London, as we take the smell of Jesus Christ out to the world, people are divided in two. Some hate the smell of Jesus Christ and some are attracted to it and put their trust in him. And Paul says, it's an extraordinarily massive thing that we're doing. It's massive. People are divided into two. And so we couldn't possibly peddle the word of God for profit. We couldn't do that. No, our job is just to speak in sincerity before God, like men sent from God. That's, that's what we do. So Paul says we can be confident because God's leading us in a victory uh, parade. And, and the thing about a victory, victory parade, I was thinking about this, that if you're in the victory parade, it doesn't matter if you're, um, if you're limping or if you're sort of bumbling along. What matters is that you're in the parade that you're on the winning side. And so Paul can say, look, to be honest, I'm sort of bumbling along a bit here. There's an open door and I don't know, I move and I, I, I leave. I'm, I'm sort of limping along here. But thanks be to God, he leads us in triumphal procession. And so for us, some of us might just feel like we're bumbling along, actually. We're doing our best for Jesus Christ, but sometimes we're limping a bit. But the point is, if you're in the victory parade, lift your eyes, because at the front is Jesus Christ leading you. God is leading us. Lift your eyes. Jesus is the king, leading us in triumphal procession. That's the first thing that gives Paul confidence. He said, God leads us. Now, here's the second. Um, more obscurely, God writes on us, verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. Uh, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you remember uh, last week, in effect, Paul is saying that it seems like our relationship is pretty much in tatters um, between Paul and the Corinthian church. And it's as if at this moment he, he sort of pauses and says, 
How are we getting on? How, how are you receiving what I'm writing? Um, are we beginning to be accepted by you again? Or do we need, I mean, do we need a letter? Do you want to see our CV? Do we need a letter of recommendation from some other uh, people to you or, uh, or from you? It was the, the common practice of the time was to, to be accepted by people. Either you had to turn up in person or you had to have a pretty decent letter from a third party recommending you. And Paul's saying, I mean, is that, is that what we need to, to be accepted by you again for you to think that we're, that we're legit as, as ministers? Is that what we need? He says we don't. Verse three. Now, you show that you're a letter from Christ. You're our letter. You're, you're written on our hearts. And that letter could be known and read by everybody. It's a public letter from Jesus Christ. It's sort of piece of, if you like, piece of heavenly graffiti that God's put on our, on our hearts to show that we're proper ministers, that we care about you. Because you're on our hearts. That shows that God's been at work in us and in you. It's, it's not a letter that's written with ink, but with the Spirit. Not a letter in stone, but in our hearts. I don't know if that's a surprise as you read that. As I, as I read that, I, I expected that it would be, um, uh, we are a letter on your hearts. Um, but he doesn't say that. He says, you're a letter, written, verse 2, on, on our hearts. Paul's saying, my CV... My credentials, if we're going to talk credentials, are you guys are in my heart. I, I care about you. I love you. My, that's what my CV uh, is. I don't know. I don't know when you last updated your um, CV. You know, every so often you have to uh, do that and you check out the websites. What sort of things are you meant to put on the CV? What sort of things aren't you meant to put on it? Um, so you know, you're told do get the grammar right. Um, don't include a letter from your mother. There's no, there's no need uh, for that at all. Um, I was looking at one uh, place which said you just need to, you need to start sentences with power words. You're familiar with power words. You've just got to have a load of power words that start every sentence. So here we go. Uh, accelerated, accomplished, achieved, addressed, administered. It's just A. I'm just, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, I, was, I, I like this one. Audited. There you go, there you go. You uh, accountants out there, audit is a power word. It's a power word. You can be thrilled uh, with that. A catalogued, dealt, earned, gathered, hard. Oh, yeah, power words that you've got to put. And of course, if you're doing your CV, you put the things that you've done. That's what you do. But Paul says, look, if you, if you want to look at my CV, I and mean, if Paul was doing an interview, he'd just he'd hold up a list. you just have names on it. <laughs> just, a, just a list of names. That's, that's my CV. Stephanus, Apollos, Achaius, names of people in Corinth that are on his heart, that he prays for, cares for. He was doing it today, uh, here. Sarah, Rebecca, Kirstine, Tim, Tahir, Alex, Francis, Stephen, Neil, Emma. Just people in his heart. He says, do you want to see my CV? Do you want to know if I'm a a legitimate minister or not? Here it is. There are names of people that are in my heart that I care about, that I love. That's the, that's the test, he says. Not some sort of letter of recommendation. That's the test. And it asks, it, it, it asks us that uncomfortable question. <laughs> Who is in our heart? That's, that's the test, says Paul. 
of proper ministry, of ministry like Jesus, who is in our heart. Of course, in a church this size, it's, it's just easy, isn't it, to just shut ourselves off from uh, other people. Because, uh, I don't know, because of time, because, because it actually costs. It costs a huge amount. Because if people are in your heart, when they're up, you're up. And when they're down, you're down. When they're going well in the Christian life, you can keep going. But when they're running away, actually, you, you fear for them. Your heart goes up and down as theirs does, and it hurts, says Paul. Of course, we can't be committed to everyone in a church in this way, in, in just the same way. But the question is, who is in our hearts? Are, are there some people who are in our hearts that we care for, that we pray for, that we give ourselves for? And as I look back over, over the years, then I've been at this church short time, but the longer that I've, that I've heard of the growth of this church, it has been largely through people who've led other people into their hearts and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk with you in this. And that is how a church like this uh, grows. But it'll go further and we'll grow together. If, if all of us were doing this, it'd be extraordinary, wouldn't it? If we were all doing this, letting people into our hearts so that we cared for them and wanted them to grow in Jesus Christ. And when we see that, that gives us confidence that God is at work because only he could have written other people uh, into our hearts. So verse verse 4, you see what uh, Paul is saying. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. We're confident, we're bold, because... Jesus Christ has done an extraordinary thing in us. We're not competent in ourselves. Our competence comes from God. And our confidence is this, that he's written people in our hearts. God, by his spirit, has written the names of people so that we care for them. That's the sort of ministry that we have. Not one of the external letter, but of the spirit who gives life. So can I ask you, would you pray, as you you look at that, and maybe you think... I'm just not sure that that's me. Would you would you pray with me, as I've looked at this this week, that there'd be more people uh, on our hearts, or those that are on our hearts would be more deeply on our hearts? Because Paul says that's that's something that gives us confidence. That's what shows that God is at work amongst us as a church, that we let people in, that we let people in, that they have a profound effect on us because we care how they're going as Christians, or we care if they're looking in on the Christian faith. We care if they're having a hard time. People are on our hearts. That's what Paul was keen on. That's the second confidence that Paul has. God writes on us. Here's the third. It's that God changes us. God changes us. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory in comparison with the surpassing glory, and if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. What Paul does, in effect, is he contrasts two ministries, the, the old covenant uh, that Moses brought and the new covenant that uh, Jesus 
brought and that Paul's a minister of. And his point is the, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament had glory. Certainly had glory. Uh, but the New Covenant is, is greater and therefore the glory that it brings is greater. And just in these verses, there, there are three quick contrasts that, it, that he makes. So verses 7 to 8, he contrasts the stone, to see, and, and the spirit. His point is the old covenant was uh, external. It was on stone, but it came with glory. Um, so there were uh, angels as the law was delivered. Moses' face uh, shone. There was... A ceremony, there was pomp and circumstance. There you go, got it right that time. It all came with glory. Uh, verse 9, the contrast is between condemnation and righteousness. So the old covenant, verse 9, condemned men. But it came with glory. How much more will the new covenant, which brings righteousness, come with greater glory? That's the other comparison. Verse 10, the third one. Um, sorry, verse 11, the old covenant was fading away. It came with glory. How much more will the new covenant through Jesus come with greater glory because it's one that lasts forever? In effect, what he's saying is one of the purposes of the, the old covenant, one of the purposes was that it was a statement of our spiritual bankruptcy. That, that was one of the purposes of it. It showed us that none of us uh, meet God's standard but it didn't tell you how to pay off that bankruptcy, how to come back into credit, or how to be changed from the inside out. It, it didn't tell you that. It couldn't show you that in full. And yet it came uh, with glory. Uh, so imagine uh, tomorrow morning you um, uh, you wake up and uh, and there's a there's a knock at the door and uh, you open the door and outside is um, is a stagecoach. That's rather, that's rather odd, but very nice. And uh, there are nice white horses, and, and a footman um, sort of gets out, uh, opens the door, gentleman walks up to the front door, and uh, he's got one of those sort of red cushions, and it's got a gold envelope on it, and uh, he kneels before you, and he presents you this rather nice-looking envelope, and, and you open it up, and it says, Ta-da, you're bankrupt! <laughs> Wow, that's rather, rather strange, rather odd way of telling me that I'm bankrupt. Very, very bizarre, very, very glorious, overstated sort of way of, of doing it. Imagine that the next day, Tuesday, you got a phone call in the morning saying, um, uh, Mr. Lloyd, you, uh, you have been declared bankrupt, but wonderful news, someone has, someone's paid you out of that. Uh, and, um, uh, you're now a million pounds in, in credits. Fantastic, fantastic. And uh, someone will be coming around to confirm that for you uh, tomorrow. Now, I wonder what you would expect. So there's a knock at the door the, the next day. I, I wonder what you'd expect to find as you open the door. I mean, the the letter of bankruptcy was, was pretty impressive, really. You might expect, as I would expect, as you open the door, I don't know, there'd be... Uh, champagne, fireworks would go off, the red arrows would sort of just zip overhead in a wonderful loop-the-loop uh, -loop display or something like that and declare, you're in credit, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. See, the, the, the message of the Old Testament was spiritually or bankrupt, but it came with extraordinary glory. And Paul's saying, our ministry that we're dishing out to people is one of life. It's one of life. It's 
It's one that brings, verse 9, righteousness with God. And therefore, because that's the sort of ministry that we have, one that gives life, one that comes with greater, greater glory, verse 12, therefore, see the link, therefore we're very bold. Because this is what we're dishing out to the world, we're, we're on the front foot because we know that we've got, we've got something that's extraordinary that puts people in the right with God, righteous with God, uh, forever. Uh, so, we put our gospel out in the open. We don't, um, verse 13, we don't have to act like Moses uh, anymore. So the weird thing in, in the Old Testament was um, Moses would go up the mountain, see uh, God, see something of his glory, and then he'd come down and he'd have to put a veil over his face to stop the people seeing the glory of God and to stop them seeing that it was sort of fading away as well. And, and Paul says we, we're not like that. It put a veil over his face to keep people from looking at the radiance while it was fading away. And then he says in verse 14, really it's the same, it's the same today. Uh, some people do have a veil over their face. Uh, it says if you're, if you're just looking at the, the old covenant, but you're not looking to how it was pointing forward to Jesus, you, you've got a veil over your face. You can't see the, the point of it. In effect, you're just looking at the bankrupt note. And, and so, uh, Paul would say that would be true of, uh, of Jewish people today who, who only look at the Old Covenant and don't see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying in verse 14, when they do that, the veil's not been removed. Uh, they're looking uh, just at the bankrupt note. And that would be true again of, of all world religions apart from what Jesus offers. That would be true of all world religions, because all world religions only diagnose the problem. They don't show the solution. They just diagnose the bankruptcy. They don't show you how to come back and have that sorted out for you. So I was speaking to a guy last night at a dinner who said he was put off the Christian faith at a very young age. And I said, why was that? And he said, all I ever heard about was guilt and fear. That was it. That's, that's all I ever heard about was guilt and fear. And, and I tried to say to him, you, you, you've missed, you've heard the, maybe the first half of the Christian, but you've missed the heart of the Christian faith, which is how guilt, how fear can be dealt with in Jesus Christ. See verse 14, only, only in Christ is it taken away? Only in Christ is it taken away. That veil. How? Well, it's what we'll remember as we share bread and wine in a, in a few minutes at the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus Christ was condemned uh, in our place on the cross. Uh, he took our bankruptcy upon himself. He was crushed by God so that we could have his righteousness, so that we could be uh, put back uh, in the right with God, uh, have his credit transferred to our account. And so he, he says, verse uh, 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Uh, uh, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory 
are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he says, when someone turns to the Lord, only in Jesus Christ, when someone turns to Jesus Christ, the veil is taken away. And uh, there's freedom. No guilt, no fear, because that's removed. Condemnation's gone. There's freedom now. And freedom that changes you. Verse 18. Freedom that changes you. So that as you look at the face of Jesus Christ, you're changed to be like him. It's an extraordinary verse, verse 18. With unveiled faces, all of us Christians reflect the Lord's glory and we're changed to be like him more and more and more and more to be like him until that final day when we're like him forever. I wonder if you've ever um, met someone and thought, I just wish I was a bit more like you. Maybe it's a famous person. I remember meeting um, uh, Ian Botham, childhood sort of, hero of mine, always wanted to sort of be a swashbuckling all-rounder like him. And I just remember meeting him, looking to his face, watching, God, I wish I was just more like you. Or maybe you, you meet someone whose moral character is just startling, just impressive. And so part of you just thinks, I just wish, on my best days, I just wish I was more like you. That The glory of God is, is really the full weight of God's character. The fullness of what he's like. And, and if you got a glimpse of it, you, you'd be pushed back, but you'd also be drawn in. You'd want to be like him because that's what we were designed for right at the start of the Bible. We're, we're told that mankind was made uh, in the image of God. We were made to be like him, to reflect his glory. But all of us turned away from God, said, we'll be God instead of you. And the story of the Bible, in one sense, is, is the way that God puts that uh, right again. Uh, so Moses gets this glimpse of the glory of God as he goes up on the mountain. But, but, it, but it has to be kept under wraps because, well, because humanity is sinful. Whenever anyone gets close to God, they're just pushed back from him, can't look into his face because the glory of God is, is like the burning brightness of the sun at midday. You, you just can't look at it. That is what God is like. And yet he's so attractive that if you saw what he's like in his compassion, you'd just want to be like him. And then Jesus Christ steps onto the stage of history and the same thing happens. Uh, Peter sees Jesus for what he's like and he says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. And yet there's something so attractive, people wanted to be like him. Now what's happening here, you see, on this side of the cross... The condemnation for sin, for turning away from God, has been paid for. And so now, under this new covenant, something extraordinary can happen in the lives of people who trust in Jesus Christ. We, we can look into the face of God in Jesus Christ and not be pushed away so that we have to cower because it's too much for us. Through Jesus Christ, we can look into the face of God and be transformed. Be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory by the Spirit. Glory on glory on glory. More and more like the one that we long to be like, until one day, one day we're told in the new creation, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is, looking fully into his face. That is what God is about. That is what God is about in this world, in the lives of those who've turned to the Lord. That's what he's doing in us. 
And, and as you look around, actually, in a church family like this, you, you don't have to look far to see God doing it, and it is extraordinary when you see it. And you give thanks for it when you see it. When you see, when you've seen the bereaved this week, just, just trusting in the Lord, when you've seen that, or you've seen the broken serving others, or you've seen the poor uh, giving, or you've seen the, the forgiven and the, the wayward coming back and walking in faithfulness. And you've seen that growing more and more as, as we have the privilege of seeing in each other. That's what's happening. Verse 8 is happening. The glory of God is at work in us. And you think to yourself as you see those trusting and serving and giving and faithful being transformed, you think, where have I seen that before? Oh yeah. That's so like Jesus Christ. He, she, that's more and more like Jesus Christ. God is at work in us. And Paul says that's why we're so confident. That's why we're so confident. Because there's no other ministry, no world religion could do that. Because it just brings guilt and fear. You're only in a transformation. Only the gospel does that. And we've seen that uh, in the lives of others, says Paul. And we're convinced that God is doing that, transforming us from one level of glory to the next. Why are Christians so confident? Why are Christians so confident? Well, they look, they look weak, they feel weak, but they're part of a victory march. Jesus Christ is risen. Why are they so confident? They might not have uh, great CVs, but there are some people on their hearts. Some people on their hearts, more and more. Why are Christians so confident? They might not have impressive buildings and outer glory, but something extraordinary is going on. God is changing them from the inside out to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Nothing else can do that in the world. Nothing else can do that. And so Paul says, uh, we're confident we're confident. So as we close, if you if not turn to the Lord, Paul would say, turn to the Lord. God says, turn to me. I can do this change from the inside out if you put, my, uh, put your trust in me. And if you've done that, then you have freedom from condemnation. You're living in the wonderful freedom and God is at work in you as you led him by his spirit to transform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ with ever increasing glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that uh, in Jesus Christ the uh, glory is no longer uh, under wraps. Um, and because our sin is paid for, we can uh, look into your face and be transformed more and more into your likeness, more and more gloriously. And so we, uh, we give you thanks and we pray that whatever things look like on the outside, that we grow in confidence that you're at work, that you're at work, that you're leading us, and that you're changing us. Please continue to do that from one level of glory to the next until that final day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.